minister to those missing range of motion or program appropriately so the person can control that range of motion. And again, didn't need a physical therapist, didn't need a doctor, didn't need a kinesiologist, didn't need computer vision. We needed a coach and an athlete. And that is the sacrosanct area on the planet. So I'm working alongside these people. And every once in a while, we would start to witness a pattern. We would see something and say, hey, can we translate this? And all I did was broadcast my thinking. And our, I learned early on that a good model, this is the definition of a model. A model has to be able to explain current phenomenon. Why are we teaching benching? Why are we teaching shot putting? Why are we teaching sprinting like this? Why is swimming technique this way? It has to account for future phenomenon. It has to explain and predict what's going to happen with a person. If your quads are stiff, how will you run? What is likely to see a pattern of over, overreaching if you're missing hip extension? What does that look like? We should be able to say if you are missing, you're stiff in the triceps, what is your bench going to look like? We should be able to answer that question. That's not crazy. If you don't have full extension in your shoulder at the bottom of a bench press, what is your bench going to do? We can predict that. And more importantly, we can start to see, hey, what are our tools to get back to that position? And what are our tools and techniques, our skill transfer exercises to reinforce your, your native skill? So part of what we're trying to do is say, hey, we're starting to identify patterns. So the model is, can I explain why my athletes are moving the way they do and why I coach the way I coach? Can I predict future movement phenomenon, which is transferability, which is the reason we got into the gym in the first place so we could be better athletes? And finally, can I communicate that to other coaches and the other professionals I work with and to the athlete? <clears throat> and at the heart of that model, because that's the definition of every model, so anytime someone has an ultimate program, whether that's GOTA or you're talking about starting strength, whether you're talking, again, anyone, that's FRC, it doesn't matter, FMS, anyone, they should be able to explain why people are moving that way, predict future movement phenomenon, be able to communicate that language across so other multiple coaches don't have to have a PhD in your, in your nuanced language. Then if you're a real coach, what you do is test, retest, and share. Test, retest, and share. I think this works. Let me test it again. Hey, I get you in the gym. We, we iterate. You're my coach. You're my training partner. We bounce back and forth. And then we're like, hey, this works. And then you bring everyone else in. Test, retest, share. And, and you might have heard CrossFit say observable, measurable, repeatable. That's sort of an iteration of, an, of a model, right? We should be able to observe it. We should have objective measures. And what, what we have tried to do then in the ready state is say, here are clear objective models for what your shoulders should be able to do. Remember, just so everyone can be clear, let me, let me blow up exercise for you for a second here. Your shoulder does four things. It does four things. It goes overhead and it rotates, of course. It goes out in front of you, wherever that is. It goes out to the side, right? This is still out to the side. And wait for it. It goes all the way behind you, like you're sprinting or dipping or benching. So every movement that you see, whether you're David Weck and coiling, I should be able to explain that position. That's a front rack shape. Arm is bent, but in front. And my top arm is in an overhead position. I just happen to be side bending, so you get all confused. So the idea here is I should be able to take my model and drop it in on top of anyone else's movement theory, movement piece, and help to explain what's going on, understand what's happening in that place, and then we can move forward. And so that's really the objective measures. And then, of course, the only thing I can really measure is not your pain because that's so subjective, not your 
readiness. Yeah. That's highly subjective. Your genetics are a component of that. What I can measure is how much wattage and power you put down. That's literally all I can see. And if I literally always come back to, can my athletes do this? Yes or no. That's why we're in the gym training. Not to only get physio physiologically stronger, but also to transfer positions and have better transfer to a sport. And did that sport get better? That's, that's all there is. And then however you want to do that is entirely up to you. And in fact, I'll say before I shut up that the coach is the center of the universe for me because the coach knows her athletes. She knows the tools that she has available to her. She understands the training age and the experience and the training loads and demands and the real life considerations of their athlete. That's called hyperlocality. So the best person in the world to solve these problems is the strength coach, not the position coach, not the sport coach, because they're trying to get kids to play ball or do a thing or learn, learn a technique to win a world championship. And it's really difficult to see someone's missing into rotation while they swim, unless you're a ninja. The strength coach can see everything. <clears throat> Talking about that with the coach and the athlete, how do you think that the pendulum may have swung too far with respect to technology? Because you talk about, you know, not being able to fully measure readiness with maybe HRV Omega Wave, and maybe you do believe in that. And we can talk about that here. But how do you handle the whole notion of too much technology? Because that's my opinion, that technology is almost taking away from that coach athlete relationship. Yeah. You know, all technology, all tools are there to help me work as hard as I can and to have a better understanding of something. I think this is a way of thinking about it of session cost and session cost comes from an idea by Ben Ashworth, who was a premier physio, a premier soccer physio in the UK. He's the athletic shoulder. That's him. And he has this idea that every training volume session thing that we do imparts a cost, a training cost on the body. What I can do then is drop in HRV, genetics, sleep, nutrition, and say, how do I manage the adaptation response to that training? And those of you with monster HRVs and mom, you know, and, and it's a pretty powerful tool. We can predict your likelihood of playing international high level soccer or footy or not based on your just genetic HRV. You can handle the volume or you can't. And we'll get there eventually because you just can't keep up with the other kids. I mean, we're going to get there, but we have suddenly we have these insights. But the idea is how do we limit session costs? So let me give you an example. I work with a, a university, turns out to be an incredible university, top tier team, top five team. When I talk to that team, I say to these women, do you think you're out working Stanford? Do you think you're outworking USC? Do you think you're outworking choose some UCLA? Do you think you think that your program is doing more work than those programs? Do they, does that other program think they're outworking you? That's impossible. Everyone now, it used to be that you could sneak in and be like, I'm going to outwork you. That ship has sailed. The density, the volumes, the craziness that we're seeing now is insane. What's up strength coaches taking a quick break away from the show to let you know about our membership site. Not only do we at Strength Coach Network put out the Cheeky Midweeky, but we have a membership site where you gain access to a video library and a members-only forum. 
Inside the video library, you will have access to over 170 different lectures, which equals over 400 hours of content. Inside of these content, it is every sport you could think of and every topic in strength and conditioning. In our members-only forum, we have career advice and we have topics in strength and conditioning where coaches ask each other questions and we help each other inside the network. You can try the network out for 24 hours for $1 if you are not a member. Click the link down below and you will be able to check us out. So what we really can control with those athletes is their adaptation response to exercise. How do I reduce the session cost day to day so that we can handle greater volume? You might say recovery, but I'm looking at recovery. I'm looking at adaptation. So a little nuance there. But what I can do is I can out adapt you and I can bring in tools and technology to help me understand the cost of the training. And what we saw was, you know, you go smash yourself in the gym for three hours, you suck on the pitch. I'm like, okay, we can sort of measure that because the measurement is suckiness. So again, any tool that helps give insight into behaviors so that my athletes can work harder and the coach can get work harder and program more and my athletes can show up fresher. Oh, I just sound like Pavel, who said a long time ago, whoever can do the most work and stay the freshest wins, right? That really is, is, is the magic. I mean, Floyd Landis, the cyclist, you know, once said, um, he's like, you know, whoever works the hardest wins. And someone's like, what about overtraining? It's like, you obviously didn't work hard enough to be able to work that hard. And you can, so see rule number one. And really what we're trying to do with this tool and technology is not take away or create complexity. We're trying to understand how the choices we're making around training athletes or adapting or their lifestyle is impacting my ability to perform more work. The, the salient feature here is I have 40 women. I have 60 dudes. Which one of those things, we're not going to go hard today because three people went out drinking, right? Or you got a bad night's sleep because your, your child is sick or you had to take a red eye. Suddenly we recognize that, okay, some of these things have a little bit limited utility. Like we still need to train hard today because we're on a soccer team or a football pitch. And I think sometimes we have thought about the Bulgarian model where – like we can, we can control every weight, every poundage, right? You're Romanian and you've got all the drugs on board and you're in this little tiny room of 12 people. Boy, that's really easy to understand inputs and outputs. Now let's start to add some of these other things and it is harder to see inputs and outputs. So that's what we're trying to do with tech. But let's remember that the most important thing is that your coach can tell if you're fried or not by your warm up sets. Did you hop over the fence or did you walk around the fence? You know, you know, as soon as we start moving and you're like, well, I'm slow today, maybe we pull off the volume and we make those decisions in real time. The, the ring should support it. But if you get to a world championship, I, I had a, I had a two-time world champion I'm coaching and facilitating performance coaching with, and he goes on the, the tour and it's cold. He's sleep deprived. His whoop is telling him that he's trashed. And I was like, why are you wearing your whoop? Take your whoop off, throw it away. The whoop is for training. The whoop is not competing because you're going to, co you're going to compete on Tuesday, no matter what. So let's go ahead and just control what we can control. So in those situations, we just want to parse through what is essential and more importantly, not interrupt this relationship between coach and athlete that's happening because that's the, the dyad. And it's not just coach telling athlete what to do, but athlete saying, coach, I'm not feeling poppy today. I don't feel like I have a step. Hey, let's pull back on this volume. It's a conversation. And that is a new revolution that's happening. 
how do you handle those days where maybe it is, okay, I'm not feeling it, but we still have to push like that duality of, okay, maybe we do need to pull back, but you know what? Hey, I know you're not, but let's give it a go and see how it works. Well, we're always going to warm up and do the thing, right? But we can, how can we modulate intensity? We can pull off volume. We can pull off reps, right? We can take bigger rest in between. You know, we can look at, say, hey, we're going to go really intense, but lots of rest in between, right? Or, hey, this is going to be a high volume day and moderate intensity. So a lot of that is, I think, the fear that I hear with coaches and technology is that it's somehow going to short circuit our need to get work done. As you say, hey, I'm not prepared. What do you think, coach? But I come in and we're still going to do the thing. You know, it doesn't mean like you get to take the day off. Dude, you come in and you're cold and shivering. I'm like, why don't we get in the Normatec boots or do some zone two or why don't you do a little breathing or mobilize? And there's something to be doing. There's never a day off, right? But I think one of the things that we're, we should be doing is saying, well, maybe we're not going to go to the weight room today, but we're still going to throw today. Or we're going to go through the full warm-up and see what happens. And let's, let's see as we ramp up a little bit more. I had a really important uh, understanding of this with Mike Bergner, who is one of my Olympic, original Olympic lifting coaches and senseis. And he's had athletes come in and after brutal, brutal high volume days, PR. And, you know, he, and what ends up happening is athletes really warm, thinking really good. And he's like, look, when the frying pan is hot, we cook. And we often miss opportunities, as you're saying, to be surprised. So, you know, we used to say, we used to kid around and cross it and be like, let's let the intensity find you, you know, or, or sometimes when my daughters are feeling super beat up in the gym, I'm like, Hey, let's just get under the bar and let's see where that goes today. You know? And some days it is surprising. You really aren't limited by what's going on. I think the more advanced an athlete is, the more she knows how to push and not push and to be able to communicate that with her coaches. Right. Cause we're like, Oh, you're, you were able to handle your typical wattage for, you know, three of these intervals, not your normal seven. That's a good point. How do you handle being able to push the field in a positive, you know, way forward as you have? And then how do you address, like you said, you don't punch down, but how do you in a constructive best manner way, push the field forward by like, okay, that's not the best way of training people. Or how can you keep that curiosity Mm -hmm. mind and continue to, to push things in the right direction? The first thing is always point positive. If you see someone doing something great that you love, talk about it, point it out. You know, I follow, I don't, the number of like stories I put up Joel Jameson in the last year, you know, where I'm like, Joel Jameson, nailing the conditioning, nailing heart rate, nailing control. Like, look how great this is. So one is I always point positive and I highlight the people that I love. And then when you come in, when I'm asked to come in, I have kind of a strange job sometimes. Uh, can you come into the FBI? Can you come into this military group? Can you come into the English national soccer team? Can you come into the all blacks? Can you come into the 49ers? When we get there, we say is what problems are you trying to solve? I don't want to bring in my plan and just slam you. You're really good at your job. You're, you're getting, you're successful. What problems are you trying to solve? How can I help you solve those problems? Let me show you how I, I think about this. And then that person can make a choice about whether it works or not. I have a, we have our 102 course going on right now, which is our level two assessment course. I have some, some really advanced physios in Australia in it and who've been physios for 30 years, working with a lot of teams. And they're like, man, I just tried a different assessment that you do, couch stretch instead of Thomas test. And he's like, my athletes could take it home. They got their butt working better in it. We just had better outcomes. I did some hard soft tissue work. They were able to access that position. 
my athlete who plays pro footy, Australian rules footy texted me and said, holy crap, I was faster and felt better and my back didn't hurt. And what I love is with that, we start with a hypothesis that there's probably a more efficient way to do it and or a more effective way or something that I'm missing or I can have a better understanding of why what I'm doing is working. And then we're just, we just express curiosity there. So we never come in and say, you're doing it wrong. That's ridiculous. We come in and say, what problems are you trying to solve? Can I help you, you know, insulate or, or, or spread, you know, spread light on that. And I'll tell you, there are great coaches like Travis Mash, who I can call up and say, Hey, what do you think about this? Or Dave Spitz, what do you think about this? Or, you know, Nick Gill. I mean, I really, my, the network of amazing coaches, I don't know anything about eye tracking quick break from the show to remind you to hit that like and subscribe button so that way you get notifications of when more content like this gets released so click that like and subscribe button and with that let's get back to the show but i'm working with some athletes who that's really important to i can call rachel balkebeck who is you know the first woman strength conditioning coach in major league baseball who happens to be the first woman manager and be like who is an expert in eye tracking and be like can you help me understand this and i think that's what's really fun is as soon as you start Stuart mcmillan is you know, one of my all time favorite coaches on the earth. And he probably is the most successful Olympic coach. I know has the most Olympic medals of any coach in the world in any sport and bobsled track and field. It's just really amazing. But if you pin him down, he'll be like, I'm not sure I understand anything, you know, like, yeah, I have to apologize to my athletes yesterday because I was shit. And today I'm going to be a little bit better. And he really has this deep understanding of, process of curiosity. And when you do that, that's great humility. You're going to show up and your athletes are going to get buy-in and you're going to go fast and win world championships. How much do you live within the research of things that it has already been said versus, Hey, being curious and be and kind of probing the problem that is presented in front of you right at that time and place. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I love Lane Norton. The data is stronger than your feelings. And yet someone had to go first doing something. And it doesn't mean, remember, what are my two, what are my two objective measures? Do you have range of motion? Yes or no. If you don't have any hip internal rotation, then your secret scroll program for me isn't working very well. Right. Simultaneously, did you go faster? So I have those two things that I'm always looking at the expression of your range of motion, expression of range of motion and your biomotor output. And so we should be looking at, you know, can you show me the research that your squat technique works for that 14 year old on that day? Come on, come on. That's, that's, you're never going to get any work done. We want to try to understand complex processes for sure. And first principles. And then simultaneously, we want to say, you know, is there a way to, you know, what happens when we manipulate rest? Can you show me all the data? That, I mean, you just couldn't get any work done. You couldn't train, a group of 20 year olds that way. So we have to look at the fact that there were so many good coaches in front of us. What's essential. Let's begin there. And then there is time to party and mess around. Let me introduce you to this thing called the warm up, where I take wild ideas that I love. I'm like, Ooh, that's a good idea. How would I integrate that into my program, which I know is working and I know allows my athletes to feel better and go better. Right? Because it's not that complicated. Your hip goes in the front of you and it goes behind you and it goes out to the side of you. That's really all the hip does. So in those positions, I can ask, well, what shape are you training? Is that a better training modality? Right. And then you can get into the weeds on 
what you, you what your what your theory is about or your or your methodology as it solves a certain set of problems and that's cool let's let's put your athletes up against my athletes one of the things that i think is important is it's really easy to sit on the internet and be like no 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 and i'm like great i that you totally your value and you're right can i see who you're working with can i see your results can i see your transparency of your model if you're filming yourself in a commercial gym telling everyone else they're wrong, you don't own a training facility or, you know, you don't haven't worked with a team. You haven't worked at scale. There's no way you can understand what these other coaches are understanding or, or what problems they are trying to solve. Can I see your Olympic medals? Can I see all your world championships? Can I see your, I just need to see them at some point. You need to show me what the results of your work is. Otherwise it's just feelings and you may have really valid points, but shouting it is not going to get you invited to the table. That's actually something that John Wellborn talked about back when we had him on the show and he talked about how, you know, his, what he was doing with power. Full athlete. disclosure, Wellborn is one of my best friends, just full disclosure. Good. And, and so he, yeah, he talked about the fact that, you know, what he did with, uh, I think he called it football. Uh, it was football CrossFit where he said like what you were doing and what he was doing, it was, it was the exact opposite of what you just said. It was people that are not just sitting around doing nothing. It was coaches that are actually working with clients yeah. and people and getting feedback in real time, because at the end of the day, that's what it's really about. Not just pontificating about, I think he had said it before, like, yeah, Cal Dietz is isometric, like short, but who have you actually worked with and what have you seen? That's right. And when you run into someone like Cal Dietz, who's running a university program, has lots and lots of medals, then you're like, huh, <clears throat> what does Cal Dietz understand? Because he continually puts out monsters. So what you should do is say, hey, coach, can I come watch you coach for a week? Can I just show up at five in the morning and watch you coach and just be a fly on the wall? And guess what? 100 out of 100% of the time, coaches will be like, hell yeah. Banana bread at work, hell yeah. It's act. It's you said the 49ers. It's supposed to be pumpkin bread, right? And didn't you just see that most recently with Kittle and them? It's pumpkin bread. It's so good. It really. You know. Is. Um. You know. Uh, let me talk. The Niners are really have an impressive uh, strength and conditioning staff. I just want to shout them out for being so amazing. So amazing that very few guys go outside and have their own special guy because the Niners staff are so great. You can be fed at the Niners facility year round. They are sneaky. They are creating really, really good culture and monsters. Yeah, no. And I mean, our um, Keir Winham flat, the founder and uh, prior owner of strength coach network has been out there a couple of times. And so, yeah, we're going to have to get somebody from the Niners uh, on the show here again. What are your thoughts on strength being added to dysfunction? Cause you kind of talked about that before when you said first two questions, like, Hey, do you have the range of motion? If no, that original thought of don't add strength to dysfunction from the FMS. How mm. would you handle somebody saying that? We wouldn't get anything done, would we? Correct. Thank you. That's my point. <laughs> so, so what it means is we're just going to squat a little higher today. That's all it means. Like no problem. People love to poop on Joel Jameson, not Joel Jameson, uh, Joel Seidman. Yeah. And let me just say that his athletes don't dump their knees. Their arches don't collapse. They don't do weird stuff with their backs. One of the things that I think we could look at and again, approaching people with curiosity, huh? You know, I don't think anyone has the secret squirrel program. You know, 
it's weird that the Chinese get people to the Olympics. Americans get people to the Olympics. The Romanian, I'm like, we all, we all lift and have different styles, but man, they're all, it all looks the same at the end. It looks really the same. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think is that we can continue to manage the first order of business when someone doesn't have access to range is to not let them default into positions that are less useful, you know, positions that, and what you, you could say for a while, you could say, Hey, that's compensation. But even, you know, the original language we all heard was fault error, right? You know, and I'm like, uh, this may be the only way the athlete can move. So is that really a fault? So what we can say is this is a compensation. You're working around a problem, but you might say dysfunctional strategy or less effective, whatever doesn't hurt your feelings is fine with me. <clears throat> but what I'm looking for is transfer. And I'm looking for specifically that the universal principles of lifting actually transfer to the universal principles of sport. There was a old, old football coach I was working with. And he was like, I like the bench. It times, it ties the arms to the body. And I've, you may have heard me say that before. And he didn't really know what, but he knew that kids who could bench could break the crap out of the bar and were wickedly stable. And when they tackled their elbows, didn't flare and they didn't get their arms ripped off and they didn't break tackles because they could grab someone and create high levels of torque and rotation and make that shoulder stable. And they were gnarly to fight. That was a gnarly person. So here is a coach who's like, this bench press doesn't just make me stronger. It teaches me principles of better motion. That's really stinking cool. And when we start to go into the movements, we were like, oh, that's really, I get it. Why we like to use rings and why we can use dumbbells because it allows us to create better, more stable postures of higher intensity that can allow me to transfer my skill to other things. So if my athletes are always turning their feet out and dump on their arches, in their crappy Nike shoes or whatever they're wearing, you know, their, their vanity shoes didn't mean to throw Nike under the bus, everyone take it down a notch. And, um, and all of a sudden you're like, well, why are you cutting that way? You know, because no one, no triple jumper lands with their foot turned out like a duck. No one cuts with their foot like a duck. It just, you can't do that in effectively position. So what we ask is why are you training? Well, it turns out this is a, this is This is going to be banned on the internet. You're going to love this. Squatting is a low power movement. You can do whatever you want when you squat. You want to turn your feet out, slam your knees in, it's low power. It doesn't matter. It's squatting. Look at one of the highest rates of force production, highest power outputages in all of sport. It's the second push or second pull in Olympic lifting, right? People will maybe agree. Maybe it's not the highest. It's pretty high. It's a lot of power. What's up, strength coaches? Want to take a quick break from the show to talk to you about our sponsor, Team Builder. Team Builder is your one-stop shop for online training platform needs as a coach. With Team Builder, you're going to be able to program for your athletes, whether they're in-person or remote. Using Team Builder, not only will you be able to program for your athletes, but there are special features such as the leaderboard and locking training with wellness questionnaires. With the leaderboard, you can have an exercise performed that day, whether it be a lift, a sprint, or a jump, and scores can be updated in real time and projected on a TV in the training. Wellness questionnaires can be used at the beginning of training, and your athletes will have to fill them out prior to being able to train. This ensures that as a coach, you're being able to collect quality data before the athletes train. So, if you're interested in Team Builder, click the link down below and find out more information let's get back to the show look at the foot position most of those athletes choose it's a much straighter foot position it's almost like they shove their knees out to create a really stable position for the hip the ankle doesn't collapse the art you can't tip the foot over the foot is flat as they're pushing through the ground 
And all of a sudden you're like, huh, why is that foot in that position? Because it's the only position that allows us to handle high speeds. Then they receive that in this ridiculous ass to grass spot. And it doesn't matter because it's a low power position. So what we can start to say is do the shapes that we're training transfer more effectively. And that gets us beyond, Hey, strength solves all problems. I have seen enough really big, strong kids get injured and been enough big, strong kids who didn't win the world championship, but I've seen enough skilled, big, strong kids who rule the world. And it points me at a, a coach I want to bring on everyone's radar is Franz Bosch. If you're not following Franz Bosch, look at what Franz is doing. And you might not use his, his bags, but look at how he talks about strength conditioning as coordination practice. We were just talking to Tom, Dr. Tommy Wood at University of Washington, and there's a direct correlation between functionality and strength and longevity and brain function, not just body mass, right? So not just having like steroids and BFR for everyone, but like a coordinated body because it turns out that coordination piece is why we're training. So strength and conditioning is really just coordination training with resistance. No, I mean, amen to that. And how much of the time is it going to be maybe somebody has that pain because there's something anatomically that won't show up unless there's an MRI. But how often are you able to actually assess that because you don't have access to it? Well, what we can say is you're absolutely right. And what we can say is, um, does this position transfer to a whole bunch of sports and other positions? So if this is a dead end technique and it's just about moving the most weight up and down a bar, that's not sport. But if it's really about jumping and landing and cutting, I mean, watch people, people will not turn their feet out and do a, a, you just won't, you'll see ridiculous squatting techniques with feet. And those are power lifters. That's fine. It's a, it's a sport that allows them to hit a certain depth and do a thing. And then do you, have you watched like no diss, watch Larry wheels run, watch Mark Bell sprint. What you can ask is, wow, I'm not sure the strongest athletes in the world are still our most athletic. So we start to see, and again, I'm not, I want to be Larry wheels when I grow up. I mean, really that guy's a monster, Mm -hmm. but the, the point is we can start to ask how effective, what is my goal and what are my training helping my goal? And I think that really helps us to get to the heart of the matter because if I'm just trying to get stronger in the gym, that's recursive training. And that is what a little bit what CrossFit suffers from. I do more pull-ups so I can do more pull-ups so I can do more pull-ups. That's super cool. And I never, ever have enough pull-ups and I can never do enough pull-ups. And pull-ups are too, too, too terrible a sport to even mention. Pull-ups are a shitty sport. And so at some point, we want to ask, did all these pull-ups transfer to me swimming more effectively, playing soccer more effectively? There's got to be... What's my goal? My goal is to play my sport and to be better at my sport. And I think we forgot what strength and conditioning is all about. And it's about the application of that. During season, my goal is to just keep you playing. And my strength training looks a little bit different during the season because my goal is to keep you fresh. I'm modulate. But then I get out of that and I'm back into sports preparation mode. And maybe I open up ranges and maybe I work on skills. Then I go to sports specific mode where I'm just flip flopping back and forth between preparation and season. And what you see is that the only goal is to prepare the athlete to be coached by the team coach. <clears throat> Talking about you know, being strong and not always being the best athlete. One of the questions that we've talked about on the show before is, is somebody strong because they're fast or fast because they're strong? Which one do you think it is? Ooh. Well, the real question, who someone, someone posted recently, I think they were maybe talking about rugby. I watch a lot of rugby on the internet. And, um, you know, they were just saying that um, let's not ever give up our athleticism. 
Um, I was uh, in conversation with Coach Harry Mara, who's one of the best decathlete coaches of all time, heptathlete coaches, probably the arguably the most successful coach in that domain ever. And towards the season, he would just carry a medicine ball around. And he would say, well, I think you're strong enough. I mean, this sounds like Bondarchuk right here. And what we would see is he'd be like, look, it's really fun to add another kilo to the bench press, but what you really need to do is throw. And it's interesting that Dan John even is like, come train with me. You're going to see how much we throw and how little we lift. We're going to hit a few key lifts, and then we're going to go throw and throw and throw and throw and throw. So, you know, to answer your question or get back, you know, the how do we develop athleticism? Can athleticism be developed in the gym or is that as athleticism best developed in the gym? And suddenly you suddenly realize probably we need to go take a Frisbee and go play some, some ultimate Frisbee if we want to develop athleticism. And suddenly just because you can bench press 300, you know, 200 kilos, does that necessarily mean you're going to be first pick for my kickball team? So, you know, that, and I, and again, I still want that kid who can have a big bench to throw the, throw the, you know, shot put a long way, comma, how do we develop athleticism? And I think the gym sometimes muddles that because it's so easy to quantify and so difficult to quantify athleticism. <clears throat> That's a good point. Um, backtracking a little bit, what, you know, how did you get into this field of, you know, being a DPT and getting into athletics and human performance? Like what was the genesis for you? Did you always know that this was going to be a field that you wanted to get into? Oh, good question. So first of all, I started out as a broken athlete. So I paddled on the U.S. canoe and kayak team. And I paddled myself right off the U.S. canoe and kayak team with a <laughs> neck injury. <laughs> Suddenly my hand wouldn't hold the paddle anymore and I couldn't turn my head. And that ended my professional paddling career after a couple of seasons because I caused that injury. It was just an overuse injury. And um, that literally, you know, the, the good old days of strength and conditioning were let's go as far as we can sport. Let's go as far as we can, as hard as we can. And when you break, we'll back off, take a little rest, and we'll go a little further next time. That was literally the official model. So um, that was my background. I grew up as an athlete, paddled on the national team, got injured, realized that I needed to ask some different questions because I looked around and was like, every woman on the national team has had shoulder surgery. So is that a feature of being on the national team? Should, we, should my daughters just go ahead and have their shoulder surgery now when they're 16 so they can get on the national team? And what you realize is, wow, can we not prevent any of this? Or is this just a feature of the sport? Like NFL has an injury rate of hundred percent. Well, let's just go ahead and get injured and, and fulfill our destiny. So going to physio school, I knew something was there, but before I started physio school, I started work with an Olympic lifting coach, Jim Schmitz in you know, South San Francisco in uh, very early two thousands. And what I'll say is I knew that there was something to how the best athletes in the world and track athletes were lifting and training. And there's something I needed to learn. I go to physio school and I really struggled with understanding what I was learning as a, as a, in this really good physio program, a really excellent physio program in California, Australian based, heavy manual work, very progressive. Not, I mean, this is like, we have masters are my daily instructors. I'm going to the world center for PNF. We're doing, you know, at Kaiser Vallejo, we're doing, you know, we're doing rehab on people who are one day out from cerebral vascular accidents. And it's really like, I got to see all the shit. And all, all the while, I'm like, this has nothing to do with sport. This is a different language. It's a totally parallel path. And you can see is my second year of physio school, I opened CrossFit gym, the 21st CrossFit. And I really struggled to understand what I was learning over here with my experience managing a population and returning them to 
power and solving all their pain problems because people would show up and they would be like, yeah, I hurt my shoulder in NOM or my ACL in college. And, you know, my knee hurts after this big run this weekend or, hey, I don't like to bench because it hurts. my Like I, I the coach was just, I was left holding the bag and all that bullshit. And, you know, what I realized is like, oh, we have to change this model. And we're going to have to move all of these things out behind the wall and put them in the hands of the coach and the athlete if we're going to be serious about this. Because what ended up happening is people would just wait until it was so bad, then they'd go see the doctor, right? And then, and that model doesn't always work if your doctor isn't right at, you know, deadlifting next to you. So that's, that's how I got into this. It was always through the lens of performance. You know, I grew up in a, a small town in Germany where we had a ski team and we raced mountain bikes and we kayak raced and we all played soccer and we did as we all played bath. We did as many sports as we could. And we were always going to camps and training with the world champion skiers. And we just had access to a lot of sort of this early thing. So always very high level of sort of emphasis on technicality, you know, that we were having conversations around pressure and technique in the skis and suddenly that that really resonated with me that, oh, there's so much feeling and technical ability that I can develop as a resource to become competent solving a skill. <clears throat> that makes sense. What advice would you have for young coaches now that might be listening to this, hearing you and, and knowing the background then? Like, what would you say to anybody that's trying to get started in the field now? You need so many reps. You're going to suck. Don't worry about it. Start coaching. You don't have to be the perfect coach. The, the things we're asking coaches to be able to do now, like it was a lot easier to be a strength coach 20 years ago Yeah, because you know, you know, the, you could go on and watch Joe, get Joe DeFranco's CD, his DVD, <laughs> where he would film an entire session and you would get to see what that looked like. All the ugly reps, all the athletes making, not moving perfectly, but you'd be like, Oh, he's training football players. I've never seen a strength coach train an actual football player soup to nuts. Mark Bell started filming all of his powerlifting sessions. That's amazing. I mean, that really is remarkable. But also, one of the things that I did early on was I had the good luck to be able to reach out to coaches and have them talk to me. And I didn't shoot them an email asking, I would say, can I schedule time with you? Can I come see you? How can I, you know, like, it wasn't just like, feed me, feed me, feed me, you know? And, you know, I picked up the phone one time and called Mark Ripito's gym and he spent 45 minutes with me discussing how he thought about the adductors in the squat and why stiff adductors were a problem in the squat. And I remember thinking, if Mark Ripito can do that for me, I'm going to have to do that for a generation. And then I would go sleep on a friend's couch and go volunteer my weekends for coach Bergner. Why taught Olympic lifting. And I remember seeing him there and being like, Holy shit, I have so much to learn about Olympic lifting. I'm watching a master teach Olympic lifting to a group of people. Like, I don't know. He has 15,000 skill transfer exercises for one problem. You know, I, I don't even know what the problem is yet, you know? So, but I did that over and over again. And what I would say is you cannot become competent by yourself. You need to have coaches around you. You need to train together. You need to go make sojourns and go watch the best coaches in the world. You need to be curious and respectful, and they will give you all the things, all the rope you need to hang yourself. They will give it to you. How do you handle the two then roles of people that are maybe working in the private sector of balancing being a CEO and v being a coach, like which hat to wear and, and how to do a great job doing both. Cause they're different skills. 
come back to that hyperlocality thing. I think the internet has made us think that we have to be relevant in 50 states and 27 countries, hmm. and you don't. You just have to be the best coach in your school, in your gym, and that's all you need to do, and people will seek you out. And, um, you know, the first and foremost is I hope you're obsessed, you know, and it, what you're seeing is a feature of our mess. And what you're seeing is that all these young coaches who look are confused. I'm like, well, that's my fault. And that's your fault because we didn't help them understand what was essential. Right. That, you know, I just saw an article on, um, New York times about fitness information for teenagers on TikTok being just a hot mess of, you know, health and fitness advice. And it really is very, very confusing for kids to come out and say, I can't, who's an expert. I can't tell you, you look like an expert. You're in the trappings of an expert. Who are the experts? So you should follow and listen to, and, you know, I think you need to read a lot of books and I think you need to go to people's courses. We don't do like to do that anymore. It puts us out. You know, there was a time in the two thousands where we all traveled a lot, maybe once a month to go see someone or work with someone or put someone on and try something out, you know? And, um, you know, I think you also need to be able to speak it. And, you know, if you haven't box squatted ever, <laughs> well, let me introduce you to box squatting for a while. Why don't you do a cycle of box squatting? The kids that, um, who, uh, who is it? I don't think it's range of strength. Um, uh, blank, uh, apologies to the person, but the guy's just like, Hey, I only, I only half field squatted for a year. I did everything on a half field squat. And he's like, I got so strong. It's so fun. And people are like, what's a half field squat? I'm like, well, there you go. You know? And so I think what's, we're crushed with tools and tactics right now. And it's difficult for people to uh, see what's what. It's going to take a second for you to be worth a shit. I just turned 50 this year. You hey. can tell my don't give a shit attitude, my gray beard. But what you're seeing is I literally finally, finally, I'm a good beginner. Like now I, I'm like, oh, I have something to contribute. I'm a beginner. And really trying to understand what the experts are doing and these other people I get to work with, it's really extraordinary. It's really, this is a, this is a good life's work. You just need to go, go to the gym, be early, be cheerful, help people solve their goals. You'll get rich. That's actually, it's interesting you say that because one of the questions I had for you is like, what still motivates you? I mean, you, you have a long laundry list of, you know, things that you've done and people that you've worked with. Like what still motivates you to, to do what you do? A, this is all I can do. <laughs> I don't have another skill, so this is it. I want to keep the lights <laughs> on the house. So that's rationalization. Um, I'm obsessed with this stuff. This is the way I was. You know, um, you know, working with this team uh, at this university, I start asking questions. The Women's World Cup just happened. I see that we've got catapult data on all those soccer players, right? How, how far they sprinted, what their number of accelerations were, all the data on GPS data. I go back to this team and I'm like, at this university, I'm like, hey, um, so what's the data here? It doesn't exist. What do you mean it doesn't exist? No one knows. We've never looked at it before. And I'm like, well, no one has? No, in the history of this sport, no one really has. I call up my friends who are experts in this. Maybe they did some in this Australia, but we can't find it. No one really knows. And you're like, holy crap. So here's a problem that I'm suddenly becoming, you know, feeding myself on becoming a sports monitoring expert. So I suddenly call my friends who are sports monitoring experts. How do I do this? What, what, what should I look at? They're like, you're going to have to invent this, you know, because I try not to be a jerk all the time. You know, my friends at the, you know, are like golden state warriors with the head of their sports monitoring. Why don't you come and hang out with him for a day? You know? And I'm like, that thing's really like, a, I'd learn a lot doing that. 
So I get to show up with my hat in my hand and be a beginner again and again and again. And that I can do the rest of my life. I think that's the recipe for just be, be, being curious. How do you think? And useful. Why do you think people are, uh, you know, strength and conditioning coaches that now work in these high performance uh, settings where they have so many different people to work with. What do you think is the reason that they're going to be anti beginner mindset? Oh, I don't think they're anti beginner mindset. I think everyone is in those high performance environments is like, oh, I'm so glad I'm part of the team. Uh, there's no way I could solve all these problems myself. And they realize that suddenly by work, this person working with a nutritionist, they solved all, all these knee problems and all these readiness problems and all these sleep problems, right? And you're like, oh, man, I better go learn something about that. So I'm not rate limited by this athlete's nutrition. I think right now one of the most important things you can be doing is working with a high-performance psychologist on mindset. And um, shout out to Lenny Wiersma, um, who, who is at Cal, who is a friend and mentor. I think he's brilliant. Um, I'm a huge Michael Gervais fan. Um, you know, his brand new book, FOPO, Fear of Other Others' Opinions, just came out. I think some of the psychology, Brett Bartholomew, art of coaching, being able to be better at communicating. Suddenly we're like, oh, man, this has nothing to do with how many reps of squatting we're going to do. It has everything to do with creating an environment where that athlete feels safe and seen and recognized so that she can go out and, and stomp on the world. And it's going to take a minute. So. What I'm proposing, everyone, is not a scarcity mindset, but a real opportunity to expand our, our footprint and become real performance experts. I want the strength coach to be the very center of the performance hub because no one has more time with their athletes. No one has more interactions with the performance coach, the physio, the, you know, the, the position coach, the nutritionist. Suddenly, we, we can be the person who is the center, and uh, that's why you're seeing – people who are becoming directors of high performance really are versed in all of these skills. Does the terminology strength and conditioning coach, sports performance coach, does that matter in your opinion? Or are we getting, you know, caught up in minutia? I don't know. You know, it's a fair question. You know, at some point we have to, um, you know, what is the role, you know? So sometimes we say performance, I'm like, your performance coach, can I see who you're working on their performance with? You know, once again, <laughs> You know, I'm like, oh, you work in Formula One, right? Okay, I understand that, right? I understand what inputs and outputs are. So, you know, am I a physical therapist? I don't know. I don't really describe myself as one. I don't really think of one. I say I was trained as a physical therapist, hmm. but I would say, I, you know, the most important thing is I'm probably a high performance coach. And what does that mean? I'm a no. What What are your problems that you're trying to solve? Let me see if I can help you solve them. You know, but strength and conditioning is the tool set to understand nutrition, readiness fear um you know it's a place to rebuild people's confidence it's a place to develop capacities um you know we find it's easy to find holes and we found uh i found some conditioning holes in a team i was working with and we brought in a bunch of just echo bikes and started putting people deep into these psychological pain holes and we just found gigantic gaps in this team at these really, really high, you know, 10 second, 15 second intervals, you know, just not a lot of capacity to change direction, be powerful, repeat that. And then that boy, that brought up a lot of psychology of boy, I better save this energy. I don't, you know, and my point is when you approach these things with humility and curiosity, it doesn't mean you're not competent. I'm not saying that, but you just come in and say, 
every day I'm going to make a hypothesis with my athletes and the people I work with. And we're going to test that hypothesis today. And we're going to recalibrate the hypothesis and we're going to test it. And the big experiment is the game. What's your biggest aha moment in the last two, three years, or maybe five years, if you're like, there's a really good one from a little bit further back. Oh boy. Um, that's a good question. Uh, and a question that I, I don't know if I, you know, I feel like I'm in kind of a constant state of awe. And um, <clears throat> I think what's interesting is to see how these fads come and go, you know, breathing is so hot and then now it's not so hot. And what I would ask you is, well, what did you end up taking from that? You know, we found out that we could look at position. We could use it for desensitization. We, we used it to calm. Like there was a whole lot of things we got out of that that have stuck around. Um, you know, I, I think the recalibration of recognizing that the most important thing is the person and then the person doing the sport and then everything is in service to that. And I think that's really a fun way to, to approach, I, I, you know, um, I don't know if I've had anything sort of blow my doors off, you know, because I'm around mutants and mutant coaches all the time. So I mean, really, you know, it's so fun to go work with some of these university teams because I get to sit there and during games, I have no skin in the game. My work has been done. I just get to watch world-class coaches coach. And that is the coolest thing ever. Is there anything that you've then taken to been like, Hey, you know what? I don't do this anymore. And you're like, uh, um, I just stopped doing it because it was a principle that I learned back in the day. And maybe you're like, you know, I removed this from my training recently. Not really. You know, I think, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, I don't do a lot of corrective work. That's just my own bias. And the reason is, um, I feel like, with modern strength and conditioning, I have so many tools to regress and progress movements in the language of strength and conditioning. You know I mean? We can go single leg, we can do Bulgarian. We can just like, there's so many ways to put the hip into extension and lift that I don't know if I need a whole bunch of single leg bridging to get there. Again, that's a tool. But what I tend to value is say, well, can this exercise that we're doing if it, if it gives me, allows my athletes to reconnect to their heaving snatch balance or snatch, every, we're going to do it every day, you know, but, um, when we, when we tend to sort of get in the weeds of complexity, I, I think, let me answer your question this way. Sorry, everyone. I appreciate a minimalist approach more and more that we can maximize physiologic adaptation with fewer choices and still have the athlete be fresh enough to go outside and do something. And oftentimes we see really good athletes have been programmed a lot of busy work that makes them feel like they're doing something. It makes them feel like they have agency and that can have merit, but those exercises do not scale. We cannot value them. What is a clamshell PR? What is your clamshell PR? Can you tell me what it is? And suddenly you're like, okay, I, I see your point, Kelly. I, you know, I, I failed with a 400 pound clamshell load. Yeah. And what we see is, well, that was a one rep max. And I wanted a five rep max there. And you, once again, it just doesn't hold. It doesn't mean that that's not an appropriate tool, but a lot of the, I think one of the things that happened was a lot of the rehabilitation exercises snuck into strength and conditioning. And they have utility when people can't move or we're trying to babysit a joint or let a tissue heal. But sometimes they have less utility 
I saw a phenomenon in Europe where I saw a lot of people get into functional training and I was like, okay, we're now going to swing kettlebells and do burpees and oh, you fell apart under a little metabolic load and you weren't fast and you landed like crap as soon as you're breathing hard. So all your functional training actually didn't make you a better athlete. It made you really good at doing things that looked like recursive functional training. You got better at functional training. You did not get better at, you know, moving a weight, a distance time or generating force. So I think um, when I start to see the masters start to ask, what can we take away so that that athlete can have more time to herself, can have more time on the court. We can be a lot more sort of nuanced in that. And I think that has been the thing I'm moving for further to. So through the lens of, I have this 15 year old daughter, she's a sophomore, she's 5'10", six foot wingspan. She's a goalie. She's a pretty good water polo goalie. Um, I think she's got what it takes to play in college if that's her desire. She wants to. Um, she's a mutant. She really just like is, is a psychopath in the goal. And between her sports training and schoolwork and still being a 15-year-old girl, dad is trying to figure out where are we going to lift? What does it look like? And it looks like a lot of Olympic lifting training. It's very essential. Like we do one or two lifts. We work. We get it. We're done. We work on pull-ups and handstands and we do some classic, you know, strength work on the sides, but though we don't do a lot of like, you know, wasting time, we get right under the load. We, you know, and then in between sets, we do something else. And I really am thinking, how can we do less with more? And then really, boy, you, you really have to have a strong case not to understand Olympic lifting or basic barbell training because it's so effective. I mean, you just talked about something that I wrote down where it's like, hey, back in the day, your warm up was light loads of the movement you're going to do versus nowadays, like you have almost have that 15, 20 minute warm up. And it's, you know, you talked about the breathing and people just being overly spending too much time in the warm up is something yeah. that I have noticed. Yeah, yeah. How is that something that you would handle being the ready state guy, like for lack of a um, I feel like I've phrased this question poorly, but I think you understand what I'm trying to get across. Yeah. Right? Well, you know, one of the things is if you've been sitting on the couch and then you're going to go out and we're going to snatch, it's going to take a minute, <laughs> right? Yeah. To get you warmed up and prepared for that. Um, you know, when we ran a gym for 17 years, so I just want everyone to know I ran a gym for 17 years. Like if you run a gym for 17 years, shut the fuck up. And, and I say that because I got, we had all the good athletes in there. We had moms and dads. We had CrossFit games, people who were trying to go to CrossFit games. And it's that workout starts at 545 when people have been awake for eight minutes. And I was like, dude, how are we going to get any work done this next hour? You've been awake for eight minutes. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, you're not even ready for this. So in the dream world, we are getting to the bar fast. Look at how the Olympic lifters are, are warming up. That's what I want. You grab a bar, you start moving in between sets. You're like, uh, I can't access that. Or I do something or I move around a little bit different. Then I'm back under the bar. And I think now as an old person, check this out. You know, your master's athlete, when your shingles vaccine interrupts your, your bench press, I was like, ah, that sucks. Um, the, the idea is in between, I would want to, I'd rather have my athletes take way more warm up sets. And look, the masters have said that for a long time, 10 sets of 10 with the bar. Like what, what, why are you in a hurry to make this heavy? Are you afraid that another jump between 315 and 350 is going to mess you up? Or, you know, I, look, I, I sometimes go out to uh, my personal deadlifting. Like I'm going to deadlift 500 every year for the rest of my life. That's one of my personal goals. And I, 
deadlifting more than 500 does not make me a better middle-aged bike rider in my neighborhood. It doesn't, but I love deadlifting. So every couple of weeks I'm like, have I touched 500? Have I touched 500? Can I touch it? But sometimes I'm like, well, one plate, two plates, three plates, four plates, five plates, boom. You know what I mean? And I'm like, that's really crappy programming. And when I really have the time, I just take a lot of warm up sets and then I mess around and I jump rope and then I hang from the bar and then I work on skills. And oh, yeah, I saw this cool thing. This came out of the, you know, this camp or I like this. And I, and I use the time between my sets to play, to explore my body, to warm up, to move. And I think when you do that, it doesn't have to be 10 minutes on the bike, do dynamic warm up, like quit that. You know, um, the first time I heard something about this, People are going to just fast forward this whole episode. I'm just rambling. Um, Bella Caroli, his male gymnast used to warm up playing indoor soccer. So we have the, one of the, you know, at the time, this Romanian superstar coach who may be a, a psychopath and uh, abusive, but neither here nor there. Um, his, his guys really got hot and sweaty by playing a little game. Like, oh, talk about arousal and people being community and interacting and being like you're in a team and getting hot and touching positions. That's what warm up should be. And so suddenly we can turn this gym time, which is like warm up wah, wah, into this is really fun. What the hell is coach going to do today? A uh, sportsmith had a great article. Sportsmith HQ, HQ had a great article written by one of their coaches. And I, I apologize. I don't know his name who worked with a lot of national team volleyball teams china all like and he just recorded all his warm-ups and it looks like a bunch of buffoonery and fun and gamification it gives us athletes a chance to compete and sign me up for that you know what i mean i think we can show our our creativity and expertise there during our warm-ups oh yeah for sure uh i did that back in the day at towson with uh you know handball and small groups oh. and even even something as small as uh the head shoulders knees toes cone game like you just let the athletes like laugh and giggle. And then it's like, holy cow, coach, like I'm mentally awake. Now all of a sudden I'm physically more awake. And it's crazy how that taps you into. Something. And the gym is, wait a minute, a fun place. Yeah. This is the great, like the music is on, you know, I'm like, grab a barbell. And everyone's like, F the barbell. And like, we're doing Turkish getups and crazy things. And we're not going to put the bar down for 10 minutes. If you put the bar down for the next 10 minutes, you're going to go run. And like, man, where it's zercher, bicep, tricep. Like, I'm like, what, how can I torture this human being with this barbell for the next 10 minutes? Everyone's really good to go after that. You know what I mean? I just think that there's so many ways, you know, where I, I'm like, grab the medicine balls and everyone's like, shit, this is going to suck. And it's so fun to, you know, play playing Hoover ball and throw the ball around and bounce and throw and toss and be athletes who then quickly are able to get under the bar and load. Last question I'll ask you before I want to respect your time, but what is something that people don't know about writing a book that you would give them a piece of advice before they ever consider doing it? Um, oh, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> um, I think what's great about writing a book, ultimately, is it's going to force you to really systematize your thinking, and that's really great. Um, I listened to Greg Cook say once, someone asked him, like, hey, I'm thinking about writing a book. He's like, if you haven't already started, you're not going to write a book. He's like, I wrote my first book when my, I was a divorcee. My newborn baby was on the bed asleep. It's like 11 o'clock at night, and I'm writing on the dryer. And so if you're not writing already, you're not going to write a book. So start writing and talking and, and practicing. Start writing blog posts. You know, really just like think writing 
the goals in the book, the book just ends up being a way of service of your, to formalize and organize your, your thoughts. And I will say that it's really important. I think the book has become more important now than it has before. Um, you know, Ma Strength just put out a Chinese weightlifting book. I think it's eventually, if you like, you're really, really good and you're sure that you have a system, you need to put in a book. You can't write about a blog. You can't put it on the internet. You need to write a book. Appreciate that, man. I feel like I could talk with you all day, but want to respect your time. I thank nerds, you for coming on. Because yeah. my strength nerds, this is all I want to do and all I talk about. I really, this is all, this is, this is the, the greatest conversation you can have is sitting down with strength coaches. People don't understand, but this, this is what is moving the world forward. The gym is the last safe place on the planet. I agree. And that's my whole goal here is to continue to make strength and conditioning, push it forward. So that way coaches can be better educated so they can be more dialed in with their athletes when they're with them. Because I mean, helping athletes achieve the best version of themselves is kind of the goal. No. Yeah. If we, um, there are a lot of ways to get to learn your, to know yourself. And I just think sport is the best way. It's the fastest, the best way, you know, my daughter, last thing I'll say is my daughter was at a, is a freshman at university of Michigan and uh, went out to the, one of the big games they're playing Purdue this a couple weeks ago, watching 110,000 people chant, singing Mr. Brightside, the start of the fourth quarter, you know, it's like a light show for that one moment. We're all united by sport. I mean, go to a premier soccer game, go to an Olympics and just feel what's possible sport, you know, that, and that, the small model is that is what we can reproduce every day in the gym. Amen to that. That's a mic drop moment. Um, we're going to link all your stuff down below, but thank you very much for spending uh, an hour plus with us. We greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. Taking a quick break from the show to talk to you about our newest sponsor, Hawken Dynamics. Hawken Dynamics builds and designs software and hardware for coaches, athletic trainers, sports scientists, and everybody in the high-performance department. Most notably, their use of their force plates with the ease of transportation and ease of use. Not only did I use them when I was at Towson, but I've used them when I've moved back here to Iowa with Tucker at Goldfinch. So, check out Hawken Dynamics in the link down below. Now, let's get back to the show. Quick break from the show to remind you to hit that like and subscribe button so that way you get notifications of when more content like this gets released. So click that like and subscribe button. And with that, let's get back to the show. So, Jeff, as yeah. we were talking and not recording for the people to know, um, you know, it'd be very simplistic and unfair to call what you do just visual training because um, hopefully for our listeners and the people that hang out around um, care stuff and SCN for a while you already know about the OODA loop and you know how do you improve in your sport how you make decisions how you detect stuff uh, but sometimes you sort of have to use the forces around the market of social media to ride that wave when everyone's just basically without knowing what it is um, coiling the term neuroscience and you see like all these things that appear to be games and stuff and they're like, oh, I'm reacting into this and that, uh, you know, and it sounds like we, we call it sometimes a joke at one of the workplaces I've been, I'm not necessarily saying it's the one I'm right now, but when people explain stuff like that, it makes no sense. It just looks like something. We always say, um, you know, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. And that's like sort of the logic that they use here. Because <laughs> it looks like it. it looks like they're doing random stuff to make people do games, but they, they follow no principles, no progressions doesn't really look like, you know, it's not tracing an object. It's not space awareness. It's not, you know, nothing of that. 
Well, I would I would maybe argue because I you know I've definitely seen that stuff on social media, but um, I would argue that um, maybe some of those people are trying to do things that uh, aren't as simple as just saying, "Oh, I'm working on spatial awareness." Maybe I'm trying to bring up the right right cere- uh, right hemispheric cerebellum, you know, and so I'm trying to do things specifically to my left side, and so it looks ridiculous that I'm only doing things with my left side, but there's other things going on. Um, you know, uh, people are poop pooing right now. Where, where was I just on that on Twitter and something like that? Uh, the Bosu ball. And of course, David Weck's name always comes in and shit like that. And, um, you know, I, I use the Bosu and it's, it's a good tool. It's just a tool. Um, but we do it for vestibular, um, purposes, not just proprioceptive, which um, sure, there's a proprioceptive element to that, but there's steps to get to proprioception because you can break down proprioception into into components, subcomponents that uh, you need as well. But um, uh, for vestibular purposes, so the vestibular system also regulates the uh, the sympathetic nervous system and also uh, activates the posterior chain. So there's vestibular things that I particularly do that may look uh, ridiculous. Um, but there's a purpose to that. So I, I inter- completely understand what you're saying, how it, it may seem random and stuff. But if, if uh, I would implore some people to maybe ask a little more questions rather than just jump to conclusions, not saying you, I'm just meant people on social media, because yeah, there's a lot of people fine. just throwing shade left and right. And I'm all for throwing shade. Uh, you know, that's why I think we're <laughs> such, I'm friends with you guys. Um, and I love Kira. You know what I mean? But uh, um, I, I think the more I've gone down this rabbit hole of neurology and stuff like that, I can understand things a little bit better. Mm. What do you, uh, for anybody listening, the right and left hemisphere stuff, what is the difference? Because I don't know the difference myself. Yeah. So, um, you know, neurology is becoming a more and more popular thing in our industry, um, brain based approach or, you know, whatever, neurodevelopment or whatever. And um, I, I, I've, I'm certified in the Melillo method, uh, um, which Dr. Robert Melillo is one of the um, pioneers of improving um, ADHD, dyslexia, OCD, autism, um, things like that. And he starts from a neurological development standpoint. And so if you look at the brain and how it, it develops from utero Till adulthood, um, it grows from the base of the brain, it grows up, and then it splits into hemispheres and it grows um, forward and, and out. And so we have two hemispheres of the brain. Um, we're one of the few mammals that, that has that. And so it allows us to do have different functions. Um, and, you know, in an oversimplistic manner, right brain is far more spatial, uh, aware, more... Um, uh, more with with movement, more with gr- uh, gross motor skills, and left brain is more um, fine motor skills, more uh, logical, and things like that. So, um, but the problem is, and, and this is what Dr. Melillo's work has shown, and, and studies have shown that if in birth, for whatever reason, um, uh, we all have in, in our brainstem, that's where our primitive reflexes are housed. So primitive reflexes are the reflexes that we're all born with. We're all born with the same reflexes. The analogy I tell my, my clients is it's like the software. We all buy an iPhone. We all have a phone that as soon as you buy it, you always have to update shit. 
Um, and so it's the, it's the base software that we're all born with. And sometimes for, for whatever reason, that software doesn't get updated and that can cause effect as far as the growth of the brain and then the function of the brain. And that's where, um, you get ADHD. That's where we get OCD. That's where we get ticks. That's where we get dyslexia. That's where we get autism and things like that. And so starting from a neurological standpoint from the base, um, and then, uh, finding what primitive reflexes the you know the person may have, and then working on the hemisphere, finding what hemisphere they, they uh, are, are is their weaker side. Um, so, for instance, like the the left brain is typically you know with athletes, uh, and I'm just throwing complete over exaggeration here. Um, I would find most of my athletes are high right brain, low left brain because they're athletes, so they're more sp- spatial aware, they're more motor driven. Um, and things like that, but that's going to lead to some left brain things. So that's where we'll get some of the, maybe some of the academic issues. Um, you know, myself included, uh, had trouble in school growing up. I was not a very good student for various reasons. And so we'll do specific things to activate the left brain via sensory stimulation, um, and, and specific motor movements, because it is a sensory motor brain that we have. And so in order to work on enhancing and developing the brain, we have sensory stimulation. So, um, you know, something, the right side of your body controls the, is generally controlled by the left part of your brain, except for the left nostril for some reason. So we'll do a lot of things where they're standing on their right leg, they're doing right hand stuff, we're doing things off to the right, eye tracking things to the right to stimulate that left brain. Um, I'll put on a tense pad on someone's right side of their spine, will do figure eights with their right hand trying to activate that left brain. So that's an example and vice versa for anyone that's more left brain dominant and has a right brain deficiency, just do the opposite. So we'll stand on the left leg and do all types of things. But um, I hope that probably over uh, answered the question that you had, but uh, each hemisphere to to tie it back, I apologize, Justin, um, has a different function. And so um, for me, where I'm struggling to answer your question as where I'm struggling with the business side of things, because, you know, trying to nail down a niche and try to market to the niche and stuff is, yeah, I work predominantly my, you know, my time is spent with high school, middle school, high school, collegiate athletes, um, for sure. However, let's say I had this, uh, I'll give you several examples. I had this boy come in, he's, he's, uh, senior in high school. He's going to go off to college in several months and, uh, wants to get ready for college football. Um, he's going to play, I believe, D2 college football defensive back. We're going through our assessment and checking hip range of motion, ankle range of motion stuff. And uh, he says, oh, well, you know, I got messed up hips uh, and, and messed up. Uh, I got very flat feet. I got messed up hips because I, I was a W sitter when I was uh, when I was a kid. So I got uh, introverted hips. Uh, I was like, well, right there, W sitting is a sign of a primitive reflex that was not integrated. So now I'm like, okay, there's some neurological things that I got to start checking with this young man. Uh, flat feet generally, not always, is a sign of uh, unretained, uh, well, not proper development of the feet during development, and then also uh, unretained possible uh, Babinski reflex in the feet. So I know he's going to have some sensitive, possible sensitivity, tactile sensitivity stuff with his feet um, and, and proprioceptive things going on with his feet which he did. So now, not only, yes, I got to get this young man physically ready um, for school, but now I want to try to optimize him and get him uh, his, his, you know, I guess nervous system properly ready for high school and collegiate sports. Uh, He also has some attention issues and dyslexia and 
things like that. And then we go through some primitive reflexes and he's got about five retained primitive reflexes. So how do you market that? How do you, <laughs> you know, cause it's not as simple as just saying, yeah, I train athletes. Well, there's, there's no, a little you more. Don't, but that's, it. I mean, like, that's unbelievably interesting. Like hearing you say all of that, like you should not apologize because I was writing stuff down. Like, all right, curious about this, curious about this. Um, let's start with the W sitting because I'm assuming yeah. that's crisscross applesauce. No, W sittings uh, where their, their feet go out and their knees go in. So crisscross applesauce, you know. Um, oh, opposite Indian, of it. Indian, Opposite, yeah. Indian, oh, um, wow. Indian sitting, right, uh, is kind of what it, it, the regular term, but W sittings where their feet go out. So that's a sign. So there's a whole bunch of signs that I'll see. So, um, you know, problems that here, here are some, I guess, some problems that I see in my adults and my kids that, that could be signs that there's, retained primitive reflexes uh when we do a lot of crawling patterns or, or things on our hands animal flow uh people that are athletes that turn their hands out generally can't have their hands straight that could be a sign that there's a a, a tlr uh reflex a, to, uh, a tonic labyrinthi reflex um kids that struggle with knowing their right from their left right i don't know if you guys have come across that or athletes that struggle with that um i just a, did this is that cheating i'm like l for left <laughs> yeah, that's a sign that there could be there there could be a ATNR reflex still retained. Uh, athletes that struggle uh, mirroring you, so you hold up your right hand, you want them to hold up their right hand, but they hold up their left hand. You know what I mean? Uh, that have to watch you. People that that like they they they, they don't understand the auditory uh, aspect of learning. And I get there's different uh, preferential types of learning, but athletes that that struggle with understanding just the body. I mean, how many times have you ever tried to teach a hinge with an RDL or a squat and kids just keep rounding their backs and they just, you know what I mean? They, they, there's a disconnect there with, with, with the proprioceptive standpoint. Athletes that struggle going slow, that have to do everything fucking fast. You know, everything's fast. There's no, there's no paced, pace to them. They're, they're going everything fast, right? There's a rhythm and a timing issue there. So that's usually, that's a sign of a cerebellum issue because the cerebellum is meant for uh, rhythm and timing and, and things like that. Eye-hand coordination issues you know so you have a lot of soccer players that prefer soccer versus uh sports with their hands well usually not always uh because they're not very good with their eye hand coordination and that's that's usually a stage three uh perceptual motor uh issue as far as development so again these are just signs of, of things and so um you know uh, i'll ask a lot of times okay do you get car sick do you like roller coasters do you get boat sick yeah i have a good amount of clients kids that get car sick okay well there could be an ocular or vestibular issue right there boom okay so now i want to check um because again the vestibular system has a huge uh component over controlling the the posterior chain system um that's partly where it's developed in in neurological development so um now i gotta do some vestibular stuff and we kind of break it down from there but uh yeah sorry hopefully that makes a little sense don't again don't like i'm i'm listening to this i'm like how do you have a hard time marketing this because there's like you're, well, you're literally how do you talking say, about yeah well okay but like okay i train athletes but then how do you say okay you're you know you have neuro you know, when i say neurological issues it does you know it to me it comes off as if i'm saying oh you got brain cancer i'm not that's not what i'm saying you know what I mean? You have there's a weakness in the system, I guess, that we can we can uh, exploit and try to make better. Um, I mean, you talk know, about so optimizing like, that, optimizing their neural capacity. Talk, yeah, talk, so like you could just talk about the uh, HDMI cord versus coax. No. Yeah, you know, I try to do that, especially when it comes to to the eyes. Um, you know, another sign is athletes that tend to always have one sided issues. Uh, I have a college football player, wide receiver, missed the majority of his senior year. Uh, high school football because he tore the labrum in his left hip. He had left ankle issues and left back issues. 
Not always, but generally that's something to look for. People that have one-sided issues, there's a developmental issue in that side as they were growing up. Maybe they didn't learn to crawl or creep properly. And if you watch them, you'll see kids that learn to crawl um, with one side. You know, uh, There's tons of videos out there that you can find. And so, okay, now not only do I have to rehab or I have to say recondition, recondition this athlete, now we do some neural things to try to bring bring up that, that weaker left side that he always has issues with. Uh, and from a postural standpoint, you know, in functional neurology, they talk about midline stability before peripheral mobility. So we want to be able to stabilize our brain and our spine before we start moving things because, I mean, that's how we fucking survive. So one of the most midline stabilizing things we have to have is full convergence of the eyes, right? Full, meaning all the way to the tip of your nose. I think you and I, I did a video oh, yeah. with you, bud. And, uh, I, man, it's scary to tell you guys, and I, 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 I'll do a post one of these days, um, um, obviously blocking people's faces, just showing their eyes. You like how few people have full convergence of their eyes. And then you'll find the direction of the hypoconvergent eye, the eye that does not turn in. I'm telling you, you could guess the side of their pain, guess the side of their issues uh, from lower backs to, to hip issues, to shoulder issues. It's crazy um, how correlated it is in, in, you know, I, I don't know if it's cause and effect, but it's, it's ridiculous. So, now, okay, this this one boy with the labral issue that, that I worked with to try to get him to ready for college football. Okay, now we got to do some posturology. We got to try to stabilize his feet to correct his eyes. And I'm just throwing a shit ton of stuff out there, gentlemen. Uh, you guys are just staring at me like, well, no, it's because I'm but, well, uh, just like, you know, so for me, that's just okay. I'd love your uh, like ideas and like, okay, now what, that's, that's you see my dilemma with that course though. It's like it's not as simple as just saying, oh, here's a 12-week program. I'll put on five inches on your vertical. You know what I mean? I don't th I think it's almost like you're, uh, it's what you, it's your subtitle. Like that's not what you maybe go in with. You And, and then you start like, you still, hey, yeah, I'm going to help you with this. Hey, in, in addition to one of the things that we're going to make a go is we're going to, you know, sprinkle this in. And then once people start seeing it, say, like, yeah, we can, you know, we can address that. And then if you have older clientele, that's where we're going to address it because when, this is going to be a little bit of a rant before I turn it back over to you. I was going to ask about how this relates to signal six and square one. And when I was introducing that to the football team, yeah. I was explaining to them like, look, if the TV on the wall, if the picture's not coming in every time you turn it on and you see the button turning on, you know that it's on the wall. You're not going to get a new TV. So that'd be your muscle. That'd be your bone, right? You don't need to get brand new ones. It's just not freaking plugged in. Right, so if it's not fucking plugged in, you got to make sure that there's power to it, and that's your nervous system. Um, that would be my way of trying to talk with people about it. So, number one, does that make any fucking sense? Then, number two, yeah. how does this relate to square one and signal six? If you've heard of them, yeah, of course I've heard of it. Um, so, square one's awesome. I, I I implore everyone to go to square one. Square one has been a game changer for for me. I learned about it. I think it was 2018, 19. Um, uh, before, um, yeah, I, I, I was put onto it. I didn't know what the hell it was. I did a little research. Um, Sean was Sean, uh, Sherman of square one was kind enough. It was, it was just crazy. Cause I literally, literally learned about it one day that, that, that morning midday, I'm sending him an email an hour later. He's messaging me back. Hey, I'm driving through Pittsburgh tomorrow. Can I stop by your place? Like, sure. Um, and so he came by and what sold me was, uh, I have little kids. I got three little kids and Anyone who has parents know that sometimes, you know, you have to sleep in their beds with them. You got to put them to bed or sometimes you just fall asleep. If you're like me, you just, whether you want to sleep there or not, you just, fucking, you just fall asleep. And so 
I had this crick in my neck that I could not solve with stim with all the other things that I had. I just couldn't solve. And Sean got me on the table and did his little assessment. And I'm not even joking. Seconds later of an intervention, crick was gone and it's been gone. And that, that I was like, shit, okay, I got to learn that. Um, square one to me is a, uh, is a, is a compensation, uh, rebooter. So I think, I think it was Ryan Thompson or Dan Victor that did a video where I think it was, I think it was Ryan where he put on like five sweaters and three different hats and all these pants. And he said, okay, these are all the layers of compensation that you have in your nervous system. Right. And then he just kept taking it off. And that's square one. I hope I hope that explains it. Right. So we're just trying to remove the layers of compensation that could cause this discomfort, because, yes, we do. We want to address the meat wagon, so to speak, with, you know, OK, my knee hurts or my, my quad hurts or my, my shoulders tight. But it, it's it's the nervous system that governs that shit. And so um, square one is an excellent system for addressing the nervous system to remove compensations to get you generally to, to, to do your daily tasks or whatever you want to do pain and compensation free. Uh, it's awesome. Signal six is their, um, like warm up. signal six, the way Sean explains is more of a shotgun approach right here. Just do these motions, hold them for these isometric times. And, you know, generally you're going to kind of cover all bases where square one is, is a uh, sniper rifle. Yep. Right. Okay. We're going very specific. Now we're going to look and, and assess every little joint, every action that it relates to gate, which is the only, so far that I found, um, kind of neuro or rehab or whatever you want to call it, um, path that addresses gate, addresses the gate pattern, which I find is very interesting since, you know, gate pattern is so important to us and, and brain function and just everything we do. So square one's a game changer and I, I highly recommend to everyone. Same. And I will agree with you where I never had the signal or I never had square one. I had, the, I did the signal six course, did it to myself. Same thing. I'm like, okay, don't know what the fuck I just did. But when I did this <laughs> C curve, when I went through all of the movements, like, and I stood up and I did the three squats. Like they said, it's like, Holy cow, that was a little bit easier. And I did it again. It's just like, all right, I don't know what I just did. Um, Nando, I already wrote it down that we'll get him on the, the show here soon. Um, John, yeah. how does this, in your opinion, compare to RPR? Cause I know you've used both and I've used both on myself and like, yeah. So RPR before it was RPR, it was Douglas Hill. Um, yep, be activated. Be activated. That stuff is kind of what, when when that started coming out, when I started learning about that, I think that was 2015. That's what really led me down this, this just path of looking into alternative shit. Um, people have unfortunately given RPR, Douglas Hill stuff, sometimes in our industry, a bad name because it doesn't work or it doesn't stick. But for me... It, it's just a tool and maybe it just wasn't the right tool for that fucking problem. And it, it, it does work when you find it and it does work. It, it, it's a great tool, but it's just a tool. It's not a, it's not the end all be all. And sometimes it's been marketed as an end all be all. I've heard some tales. Um, and sometimes, you know, people try to use it for that, but it's, it's an awesome tool. Um, RPR is, is different. RPR addresses more. Um, I, I well, I guess Douglas heels and I'm not, I never took well, a Douglas listen, heel they, they bastardized it. They bastardized it because they changed I, it. Yeah. They it did afterwards. Cause it was yeah. originally getting, re it was go get reset from somebody. And then it turned into, Oh, we don't teach you to touch people, but that's what Douglas was teaching people. That's what they were teaching people in the early days. 
Well, yeah. So m- m- for me, when I was trying to study, what what is this? What is our Doug, be activated? Like, what are these points? You know, uh, and I have no idea. I've never spoken with Douglas. I don't know anything about Douglas personally, um, but they resemble Chapman's reflexes. So anyone interested in Chapman's reflexes, look it up. You can find pictures all over Google of Chapman's reflex points, and they're points related to uh, muscles um, that uh, I don't know, Chapman, this guy Chapman found, but what that led me to then is applied kinesiology and then touch for health. All right. Now what is this shit and why are they using Chapman's reflexes and stuff? And so that's a whole branch of, again, different type of things. Um, that's, that's very helpful. And it's a great, great tool that, uh, I've studied and and looked into. They use a little more, it's a little more uh, based off of Chinese medicine, but, uh, uh, applied kinesiology is, is from George Goodhart and, and, and what the 1950s and 60s up in Detroit. Uh, and it uses, it's awesome. It's a lot of energetic stuff. And, um, again, it's all good stuff and it, it's, it's, uh, relatively non-invasive in things. Yeah. It's gotten bastardized into other things and I get it. You know, some coaches can't put their hands on athletes. So I think maybe that's why they're teaching it hands-free. Um, and I don't think it works as good hands-free. I believe in the power of touch and energetic and, and transfer of energy from a, from one person to another. Um, but I, I still, I do think it's great. Um, it, it's all great stuff and it's a great tool for the toolbox. hundred percent agree. And you started talking about, um, hands-on and Chinese medicine and it made me think about, um, Wodango and how Mike will talk about, you know, there's yin and yang and yin and yang. Mm-hmm. He'll, he'll say it, but how he can treat different things on the channel can help things in the channel. Um, yeah, is yeah. this with the brain in the right hemisphere, left hemisphere? Is it like that? Am I just swing and miss? Mm-hmm. What do you, what? Swing and miss. It's all good. I, I still love you. Um, right, no, they're, it. they're different. Mike, Mike has gone far deeper down the Chinese, um, studying Chinese medicine and stuff than, than I have. But no, that's this is more related to energetic and meridian lines and stuff, um, and, and uh, uh, which is related to organs and related to muscles and related to times of day and, and things like that. So Mike can speak far greater than what I, I've learned with that. But Touch for Health does use the meridian lines um, to to either uh, turn on a point or or if it's too like a fuse box, if it's got too much power going to it to to calm. A point. Uh, so they have different techniques for that. You know, acupressure. I can't use acupuncture. So acupressure is just using your hands. Um, and and uh, again, the neuro stuff, uh, as far as right and left hemisphere, is a bit different. Um, you know, again, my my education in that comes from functional neurology and from uh, neurological development with Dr. Malilo. Um, when you were talking about the sensitivity to the feet, is that why? And I forget the organization that put it out, but the neuro balls that people yeah. who use or the rock mats oh hell yeah dude so there is so much uh sensitivity and proprioceptors and ectoceptors and and uh down at the bottom of the feet uh that go have a direct connection to the brain and so part of proprioception is you can, you can break it down into uh conscious and unconscious proprioception and part of that is tactile sensitivity Right. Part of proprioception is be able to feel where your body is. Right. And, and, and so, uh, we roll out, we have, I have a bucket full of neuro spike balls, um, that we use that make everyone to roll out their feet, roll out their hands. Cause those are yeah. from a developmental standpoint to the most sensitive and, and important things. So, um, we start with that. That's why we use that. But you'll also find, um, with, with athletes that have, again, let's just say con- chronic right ankle sprains or left ankles or whatever foot issues, 
that if you do some proprioceptive tests, um, like a two-point discrimination test or a, a two-point toe-touch test, that they can't feel it or they don't know where you're touching on their feet. Um, so we do, again, a good bit of proprioceptive because that is the base of the pyramid. Uh, and when I say pyramid, I'm talking the, the pyramid of learning that was developed by a couple of educational psychologists, Williams and Schnellenberg. Uh, that one of the base, uh, about, right above primitive reflexes, is is proprioception and, and tactile sensitivity is part of that. And so, you know, uh, for instance, a sign that someone has uh, some tactile issues is they have very sensitive, they're very ticklish, or kids always wearing fucking Crocs. Uh, I can't tell you. I don't know if there's a correlation. This is just in my head, but kids that always wear Crocs are the kids that have the most fucked up feet. Um, yeah, I thought wearing Crocs all... was good for you. I just bought a pair. I'm all excited. Like, nah, bro. Um, no, uh, you anything in posturology? Doctor Brico, uh, the founder of posturology, who's from France, who's an orthopedic surgeon, uh, they studied and found that anything over two millimeters off the ground disrupts the information from your feet to your brain. Um, so that's one of the most important. Uh, why I'm a, a bit of a shoe Nazi with my family. We only wear like minimalist shoes or we're barefoot um, all the time. Uh, and, and so my athletes, that's one of the reasons, one, one of the many reasons why we take our, our, our shoes off in our uh, facility. My, my adults, I make them take their shoes off, uh, their socks off if they're willing. Some adults are embarrassed by their feet, so they'll take their socks off. But um, yeah, take care, take care of the feet. It has a huge profound effect on the posture of their pelvis, the posture of their jaw, uh, the eyes, right? So the eyes, um, you know, the theory is uh, the, the, a lot of people think the eyes are meant for seeing. Well, we can survive without our eyes. Um, the eyes are meant to really find a horizon, right? The problem is uh, you can't shoot a cannon out of a canoe. So if we have un unstable feet or uneven feet, that's not going to stabilize the eyes. And so that's where we get a lot of the people with the uh, convergence issues tied it back to that. So one of the first things we do in posturology is stabilizing the feet. I mean, would you say that then like a lot of problems could be solved by the ability to work on convergence? Um, I can't say that. What I will say is if we get the, 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 the wheels of the car and then the steering wheel of the car in proper alignment, um, to begin with, before we even try to fucking drive, I'm willing to bet will have less wear and tear. All right. And then my next question is because you work in a private sector, you have the ability to, do you think that this doesn't get put into in a team setting just because for fear of head sport coaches being like, what the fuck are you doing? We ain't doing that. Um, I, I can't attest. I know like Annette, um, I can't pronounce her last name, but for posture pro, she's, she's worked for some teams. Uh, I know uh -huh. particularly she's doing stuff with the, uh, the Florida Gators men's basketball program. Because uh, she posts about it all the time, um, I I can't again I I don't know um, you know I think it's not the easiest to implore in a large group setting, but I don't think it's that hard either. I just think uh, you know they don't people don't know what they don't know, and we tend to stay away from things that are foreign and and things like that. And plus, um, someone's got to be educated to to do it, and you know usually it's not the head coaches. Um, well, there you go. Now, like hearing you talk that like that could be that could be one of your sticks, too, is like, hey, this is a ability to teach teach coaches and teach athletes on it in a simple way where you can start to introduce it. Because you mentioned earlier and I wrote it down how vestibular can plays a role in posterior chain development, like posterior chain development is clearly important. How is it that the vestibular system affects posterior chain development? Uh, through the cortical spinal track, um, right? There's there's different pathways of the vestibular system. 
uh, and through the cortical spinal tract, so it goes down the, the spine. Um, so that's what the, the Romberg's test is. Anyone familiar with the Romberg's test? Um, it's where there's, there's several variations of it. Uh, the Romberg's test you can do, you stand, stand up, put your feet together. Uh, you can cross your arms in posturology. We point our fingers and then I'll line up with them and measure and you close your eyes and you see how they sway. Uh, if they sway, if they move left, if they move right, um, an advanced version is you put one foot behind the other now. So that really challenges the vestibular system, um, and close your eyes. So anytime you kind of take the eyes out, that's going to be highly vestibular. Um, oh, so you're saying eyes... feet together, stand up, cross your arms and bend over. No, stand up. No, no, don't, don't bend over. Just stand up because... and just stand do... straight. Can you stand there? Can you right stand now. there for a minute? And then another one would be a minute. Yeah. Just, I mean, just do it for 10 seconds. Justin, let's, let's see. <laughs> but right. Do you feel, put your feet together and see, do you sway? You lean right, you lean left. Now a more advanced one, Justin would be now put your right foot behind your left foot, like directly behind your left foot. That is an advanced Romberg test. And these are simple tests you can do with anybody. Hmm. Right. Generally, the side they fall to is the weaker hemisphere. In the, I in felt the, myself in the, going right and left when my feet were together and like kind of diagonally when they were together, but I'm going to do that more later. All right. But yeah, um, and so there's there's easy things. So there's a course, uh, the IP Institute by Matt Belay. I think He's that's the Montreal. one. Dude, that, that's that's game changer. I mean, that 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 stuff, when, you, when I first took it, I was like, what the fuck? What is this weird stuff? I'm going to get athletes on the floor and start rocking and doing all this stuff. Dude, that it's, it looks like you're just, uh, uh, uh. but when you do it and when you steam, when you understand the why, again, it's it, tying back to our original conversation with what Fernando, was it when you understand the why, then you're like, Oh, this shit. Okay. This shit's a game changer. Like this what was stuff. it called again? IP, IP Institute, IP Institute. And yep. And, the, and so, it's, it's just my nature. I took the IP Institute. Uh, there's three levels. Again, it's, it's relatively inexpensive. It's highly, highly applicable. Uh, Matt is amazing. He goes above and beyond trying to answer questions, help you. You can message him. He'll send you videos of, okay, if you're doing this right or left. But it's it's very well thought out course on neurological development, but now making it more applicable for the weight room and for coaches like us. Um, so it's not the Malilo stuff per se. Uh, but it's, I mean, you can put the two together which I, yeah, I was about to say, what's the difference for anybody that's listening? Like, all right, um, the difference is Matt doesn't address directly primitive reflexes and he doesn't directly address, uh, the right and left hemispheres. He looks at it from his course is built from, as I mentioned, the pyramid of learning, um, from Williams and Schnellenberg's and the stages of development motored. Well, the stages of development. Um, and so he goes through the stages with specific exercises and explains the why and gives you the science and, and, and all this stuff. And it's, it's fantastic. Uh, it is an awesome course. Um, it's very dense in, in its, uh, in, in the education and the, in the time Matt put puts into it. Um, but it's, it's awesome. It's good stuff. But again, it's one of those looking from the outside in, you see me or Matt or Dan Victor post videos of kids rocking on the fucking ground or, sliding their foot up their their leg you're like what is this weird shit um again but you'll find it where okay I, and I, I i posted a a video i have a couple soccer athletes who chronically have a tight right right hip their right hips always tight external rotation is very a, a struggle for them uh, on their right side uh and so in development well where is the glute developed well it's developed during creeping and then during crawling that's where the glutes are developed and it's tied in with the big toe so one, we roll out their, their right foot, and then two, we do some creeping exercise 
that involves some proprioception, digging their big toe in, similar to how it is when they when they learn to creep, and then all of a sudden their external rotation improves without having to stretch because it's a neurological issue. So that's what tie it back to that story of that that college football player, the, the defensive back that find he was the W sitter. Well, he has flat feet and all this stuff, super tight. Man, we've just been doing part of his warm-ups is just all this neurological stuff, and he's been loosening up. He just played an all-star game. He says he played pain-free, and he's moving better than he has. And Again, we don't we do not do too much as far as uh, mobility work. We're doing a lot more of the neuro stuff with him. <clears throat> Feeding into that, how would you – I heard people talking before too that um... – Oh God! Uh, anterior b- being the lower cross syndrome is just completely made up. Would that be kind of tied into the fa- like? Yes, it is made up because it is all related to to neurology and the vestibular system and our reflexes. Um, well, it, it's to me, it's more related to. It could be related to re- reflexes, so it's related to tone, right? So whether you agree or disagree with posture, some people uh, in our industry really don't agree with posture. Some people do. Um, regardless, generally there, everyone agrees on tone. Tone is the, 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 uh, tension in the body, right? So we shouldn't have, we should have even tone in our body, right? So my, my right shoulder shouldn't feel tighter than my left shoulder and I should have equal tone, right? Regardless of my shoulders are tilted or what have you. And so postureology looks at tone and that's now dealing with the kind of upper and lower cross syndrome. And so in postureology, yeah, we look at anterior tilt, we look at the head and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, what we're really trying to address is the sensors of the body because posture is just the brain strategy to overcome gravity. Uh, And so it's the major sensors of the body that kind of tell us now how to do that. And the first sensor um, is the skin of the feet, the bottom of the feet. Um, That is the first sensor. Then the eyes. Then it's going to be your skin uh, and jaw and then the vestibular system. So, so we kind of address it in that order. So for someone with, with so kid, people dealing with high school kids, they're not going to have a lot of scars. They're not going to have tattoos. They're generally not going to have metal in their mouth unless it's braces, which we can talk about the, the detrimental effect of braces. Um, they're not going to have missing teeth, right? So generally, you just address their feet, address their eyes. Shit fixes itself pretty good. For old, old guys like us, you, you, happy birthday to you, you old fuck. Um, you know what I mean? We, we got, we got some things, you know what I mean? I got scars. I'm sure you got scars. We got tattoos, things like that. So now there's a bit more that, that goes into the postural adjustment and things like that. But, um, upper cross syndrome, you know, uh, again, for me, um, it, I, I look at it from a postural posturology standpoint is, is going to be problems with the feet, the eyes and the jaw. So, okay. Start there. What about with people that have calluses? Cause their toes and they're like, they have bunions. Is that like, Hey, just get them shaved down, soak your feet. Like what would you be telling people to do about that stuff? Then? Well, I would say adjust your shoes. First and foremost, you need different shoes. You need different footwear. What should um, they have? I am, I am, I am, I am, uh, I can't really, I, 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 I'm going to say minimalist. You know, I'm a minimalist guy. Maybe have to work your way there. Maybe don't just jump right to, you know, a pair of Vivos or something like that. But um, I'm a minimalist guy. There's criteria that I look for. Again, anything over two millimeters is going to disrupt that information. So I'm trying to either get them there or work them down to flatter shoes, looking for wider toe boxes. Um, with the bunions and stuff, you're generally going to see from a posturology standpoint, that's where they're going to have asymmetric feet. They're going to have two different feet, both from a standing standpoint and then from a 
uh, a balance standpoint, feet that do different things, which to me tells me now that we got asymmetry of tone in the body, and that's going to cause some other things up the chain that's going to get fucked up. And so, as we know in in the physical therapy world and in the posture world, the feet are going to affect what's happening at the pelvis. Well, people also know that what happens at the pelvis can affect the jaw. And so it's all connected. Um, and, and so also, this is where I was optometry. Would, would the, the field of optometry would pay a little more attention to posturology because you can speed up a lot of things that happen at the eyes by correcting the feet. Because as I mentioned before, the eyes are meant to find the horizon. If we can't do that well, we're going to have tracking issues or we're going to have convergence issues. It's usually because we're trying to shoot a cannon out of a canoe and we got feet that are doing two different things. So why do braces and tattoos mess it all up? Because the skin is the largest, largest organ of your body. And so now all of a sudden we're putting this, this foreign substance into our, into our skin. Um, you know, scars are hugely detrimental to, to uh, going back to the Chinese medicine. Uh, I'm sure um, Gudango could talk about that, detrimental to the meridian lines and the energy and things like that. One of the most detrimental scars uh, that I generally see is with women with C-sections um, because of the central meridian and, and running through the body. Um, and everything like that. My wife uh, has had two C-sections, so you know, uh, scars are hugely detrimental. But same with tattoos. And trust me, I love tattoos; they're fucking addictive. But uh, they can cause some energetic issues as far as uh, um, being part of the skin. Are they fixable? Like, if anybody had, like, let's say somebody didn't want to get tattoos, they had to get surgery because, you know, um, pregnancy yeah. or an injury. Yes. Yeah. So you get you find a practitioner that can do a scar release, and then. Um, in posturology, they, they use in France they use a, a blend a, of essential oils. Um, I, I couldn't tell you what was all in that, but I was trying to find that when I was studying posturology. And the only place that you can find it, and this is not a knock on a net, but it was a net up in uh, Posture Pro, and she's up in uh, uh, Montreal, and it was like 120 bucks. And again, I'm not trying to. It, it works. I'm just saying that for me, that's 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 heavy. And plus, it's coming all the way from Montreal, so it's not going to be here quick. So there's a company. Um, I think it's the name of it um, that I've used their essential oils for, for stimulating the brain and doing things like that, that I reached out to them and uh, said, Hey, would it be possible you can make this blend? And they said, yeah, why? Absolutely. So they ended up making a blend for me for scar release. And they made, they added their own components because they're a bunch of body workers and, and uh, Hmm. um, massage therapists. So there's a scar release oil that we used um, that they also teach the technique with. I can send you the, uh, the the info on the name and stuff like that, but yeah, scars are hugely detrimental, and so uh, this scar oil on top of a good scar release uh, can release the negative effects. What about scar? What about uh, I guess do stretch marks count for any pregnant women that didn't have a C-section or athletes like me that went from two twenty-five pound high school athlete to three hundred pound uh, offensive lineman? Um, I don't know that answer, and I'm not going to lie to you with some some bullshit. I, I don't know the effects. You could have uh, sold some fucking oil to me and a bunch of other people. Dude, it, no. Uh, I, I don't know that. I have not looked into the – they never, in any of the courses I've come across, talked about the effects of stretch marks. They just talk about the effects of uh, uh, tattoos and scars. That's – I mean, I never would have thought about that. But, I mean, it, I guess you're right. It makes sense as to, you know, you're putting all this sensory input and then um, – my massage therapist, he talks about, you know, and this is probably something that you would 100% agree with, is that energy can never be created. It's, you know, just transferred. So you're you're now accepting all of that energy from the, you know, the needle and the ink into your body. Now where does it go? It goes into your, it goes into your fascia. It goes into your skin. And how do you, you know, remove all of that? Yeah. Time and surgery. <laughs>
dude um yeah is there anything else that you wanted to you know bounce off each other's brain because that's that's a lot of the notes that i had written down uh oh the braces thing what is how like how to braces is it just because again the jaw like you're well is this purely just braces to fix the teeth or when there's like a broken jaw like kanye west uh well metal metal in the body so we are electrical beings right and so metal conducts electricity so now all of a sudden we put metal really close to the brain and not expect it to have a electrical effect on one of the most electrical parts of our fucking body. You know what I mean? So mm. uh, it has an effect. So that's why I'm a big fan of what, what's the clear things now the kids are wearing, the, the clear the clear yeah, braces. Yeah, Invisalign, I think. Invisalign, yeah, thank you. I think that is a far better option um, for that. So also that one of the things we ask in posturology, especially with adults, is do you have any metal fillings and things like that? Um, you know, because, again, that can all have, a, have an effect. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, we've... We, we've uh, I, Maybe you've seen this being around teenagers and stuff like that, but attitude changes. And then there's, trust me, there's a lot of reasons for I've it. Seen, I've but, seen fucking but, attitude but you get some two, you get some, yeah, you get some 2D, 2D teenagers. And then, you know, uh, we've seen them get their braces off and their attitudes change. Uh, their personalities change, um, you know, because for whatever reason, uh, again, there's a lot of reasons to that. But, uh, you know, I tend to believe that, you know, The Body Electric is a great book that I highly recommend everyone check out uh and learn more about uh, the negative effects of emf and wi-fi and even the bluetooth that's in my ears and all this shit but uh yeah metal metal is uh so i mean shit the apple watches we wear i don't wear apple watch i don't wear any watches now yeah sorry bro you know i'm not putting electrical non-native emf on my pulse wow Look what is it doing where just pull the pull the uh the tinfoil hat up on your head Hey man, I'll be I'll be that guy, you know. Put me with Weck, I guess, in, in that fucking tinfoil. Um, um, one thing yeah, I did write I've, down: meditation. How does meditation? It does it play any role in any of this, or you're just like not nah, different? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, dude, I love. I think meditation is fantastic. Uh, you know, for downregulating uh, an already crazy nervous system that ninety nine point nine of us already have. Uh, to you know, collecting thoughts, to breathing techniques, to just I, I think meditation is fantastic. Absolutely. It's, so it, it, it kind of rolls into any of this or does it roll into any of this vestibular system training or any of the Malilo work that you were talking about? Or is it just kind of like a not meditation directly, but usually when you're meditating, you're doing breathing and you're drawing sometimes a conscious thought to your breathing. And so, yeah, so we'll do breathing techniques. You have kids with a heightened moral reflex, a fear paralysis reflex. They're generally the kids with high anxiety. So one of the first things you want to do is combat. So couple different ways to do that uh and i have one boy particularly i do this with we'll do box breathing and then i'll spin him in a chair and then he's usually like much calmer you spin him or you rock him spin him hmm. i'll spin him uh, <laughs> now weird I'm, shit that goes on at, at our gym i'm really concerned What's about that? my watch now <laughs> bro i've seen we've done postural assessments with uh with people with their apple watch on and off big changes um we I, I had this one lady um speaking of scars she had i don't know what the surgery is but she had a scar right here yeah and so i did a postural assessment she had a, right? yeah. yeah you know um she, she had a pretty big forward head head posture so i did a quick little release and we put the oil on it and, and her head posture went back at least two fingers from the plumb line that we use um and stuff like that so yeah it, it uh I've seen, we've seen, we've had uh, guys take on and off their wedding rings and, and seen big changes in their, in their posture. What if you get in the position? Is that better? They, they had, they had more yeah. swag without the ring, didn't they? Especially with the drink. 
yeah, all of a sudden like the moving balls around. got a little lower with it. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about uh, what about anybody that you know they'll talk about wearing um, like stainless steel or the metal, so rat like a, a bracelet or a necklace to. I've heard those things again, too. Yeah, there's um, about the watch. They, again, we go through that through the posturology course. Uh, talk about necklaces and metals. There's ways to uh, to change the uh, the frequency of that. I forgot what I have the notes somewhere. There's a something you can like. It doesn't ruin the 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 chain or the necklace, but there's something like a little paint or it's not paint, but it's just some kind of like something you can paint onto it that that desensitizes the the magnet magnetism of the the necklace and the and the stuff so because yeah telling women to not wear jewelry is a hard fucking sell i'll tell you that and so all right so okay here try this stuff with it and that way we can both be happy you know what i mean yeah no that's awesome uh like i said is there anything else that you wanted to talk about because these are all my notes i had from you man i appreciate it uh no, man, I just appreciate you guys' time. It's just, uh, you know, for me, with with the course, and I think it's a great course and, and awesome content, it's just now how do I market that? Because, you know, one of the things we had to do was try to make a promotional thing and then some funnels and it's like, okay, what am I trying to funnel to and what am I trying to make these promotional things to? Okay, I can can't say I can get you out of pain in, in, in five weeks because I can't make that claim. I know I can get you out of pain, but I can't make that fucking claim. Um because then otherwise I'm fucked and then you make uh, a move better though. No, I, yes. You know Feel what I mean? So it's it, it just, you know, and then some people, I mean, 95% of the people that I, I've come across don't know what primitive reflexes are. I've never heard of it. You know what I mean? And so it's like, okay, now I got to go through this whole, okay, this is what it is and this is what it is and this is how it affects you. And like link it into you know, paleo, bro. <laughs> yeah. Right. Seriously. People yeah. know paleo. Hey, our ancestors and all no. that shit. No, like, it's not really related to that necessarily, but you know, um, like I had a, I had a mother reach out to me about her daughter. She's a, she's a competitive dancer and wants to work on flexibility. Uh, I said, okay, what particular looking to, to improve on with her? She, well, she, her ankles are really tight. She was a toe walker when she was a kid. Boom. Primitive reflex. Well, no wonder all the physical therapy she's been doing for years hasn't improved that because she has retained primitive reflexes. So toe walking is a sign of retained primitive reflexes. Boom. Jeff Moyer, motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So, anywho, it's just okay. Now, how do we bring that to the sports world? And like Dan Fichter's doing a great job with it. He does a better job of me marketing that stuff. He's someone you guys should jump, uh, get on, get on a call. He's an interesting fella. Um, but uh, I don't know. I'm just not that savvy of a business person to come up with. Hey, you're fucked up. Come see me. That's why you got to call him here. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right, man. Appreciate you, and uh, have a good rest of the day. You too, man. Thanks, boys. Congratulations on making it to the end of the video. Why don't you celebrate by watching more videos just like it? You can also help us on our quest to placate the algorithm gods by liking, sharing, subscribing, and commenting. Thank you.